All right, so Yom Teruah and the Mark of the Beast. So Yom Teruah is the day of blowing shofars. It's the day of blowing the trumpets. It's an annual holy day from sunset to sunset. It has many meanings. One of them is to remind us that our king is also a judge and a savior over all creation. And his judgments will result in horrific punishments or in transcendent rewards, depending on whether a person chooses in this life good or evil, righteousness or wickedness, the light versus the darkness. And this year, we're going to look at Yom Teruah through the lens of the seven trumpets in the book of Revelation. Can I get an amen? Yay. All right, thank you. They herald both terrifying judgments for those who receive the mark of the beast and exemptions for those who are sealed on their foreheads with the mark of God from the outpoured wrath of God. Here's the big question. Which mark do you have? The mark is transcendent. The mark of the beast is not just a phenomenon that takes place in an isolated period of time with just a very small group of people. It actually, in principle, speaks to all people in every age. I know we want to scoot that all the way down, always pushing it into our futures, thus escaping any responsibility for the idea of the mark of the beast or the mark of God. But suffice it to say, it's transcendent. And we're all participating in one or the other mark. This is very important for us. Make sure you have the mark of God. It is the single most important thing that anyone will ever do in this life. So let's jump back to the law of first reference. Let's go back and find the first reference to Yom Teruah, the day of blowing shofars, so that we can get a foundational understanding by which to understand the later texts at the end of the book. Leviticus 23, 23 through 25. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel saying, in the seventh month, on the first of the month, you shall have a rest, a reminder by blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work, but you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. This is one of the appointed times. This is one of the holy days of God. If you love God and you want to identify as being a child of God, these are the days that serve as marks of identification. It puts you in relationship by way of a spiritual marking that you belong to God and God belongs to you. So this is the day of blowing. Once a year, a holy convocation where we gather together to blow trumpets. And that's all it says. There's no other explanation. I mean, you have to just scratch your head and say, what is that all about? So we gather together, we eat, we drink, and blow shofars. But what does that mean, right? What is that all about? 
Well, that unfolds for us throughout the scriptures as God begins to reveal what that's all about. The blowing of the trumpet. There's many, many reasons given for the blowing of the trumpet. As I said earlier, there are reminders that God is king over all and the supreme and presiding judge of creation. He judges his people. He judges the nations. And the blowing of the trumpet is a reminder that he is the judge of all. The trump of God is sounded at great apocalyptic and eschatological events. We find that throughout the scriptures, especially in the prophets. The trumpet is sounded at the beginning of national and global judgments. The book of Revelation has seven trumpets being blown. Seven trumpets at seven different times. And the final one signaling the return of Messiah to judge the living and the dead. So as we come from the beginning, the first text, all the way down, it opens up and we begin to understand what this day is all about. We blow that trumpet to remind ourselves of who we are, the people of God, and who God is, the supreme judge of the universe, and that he comes and he judges his people and the nations throughout time, and ultimately he'll judge everyone, the living and the dead. The blowing of the trumpet marks those great eschatological events. That's what we find in the summation of the book of Revelation. So, what shall the trumpets remind us of this year, right? This year. Every year we take a different focus and emphasis in this celebration of the trumpets, the blowing of the trumpets. But what about this year? This year I want to focus on the coming judgment on a global system that has defiled and perverted most everything and also the reward of those who stood for the truth. Now I'm going to give it away early on. This is not a scare you sermon. I'm not trying to scare you. I want to encourage you. God comes to judge those who hate him, his son, and touch on his people. He does that on our behalf. He watches over us. Or we're going to be okay. But we've got to have a perspective that allows for horrible things happening without falling into the fear of what's happening all around us. So let's pick up the reading in Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 to 13. The big final eschatological blowing of the trumpets, right? This is where the fullness of the meaning of Leviticus comes into view. It says, when the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. So we're moving from the seals, seven, to the seven trumpets. In fact, the seventh seal introduces the seven angels who will blow seven trumpets and the final trumpet will be the ushering in of the return of Yeshua to this world, kicking off the final glorious phase of the kingdom. Verse 3, And another angel came and stood at the altar, holding a golden censer. And much incense was given to him, so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. 
and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder, sounds and flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. How many times do you just feel like, man, I pray and pray and pray, and God doesn't answer? My God, my God, you know, why hast thou forsaken me? I cry out night and day. My, 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 my bed is soaked in my tears. Even the martyrs under the throne crying out, God, are you listening? Do you hear us? This tells us that our prayers ascend into heaven and that the angels of heaven mix with our prayers holiness, incense, ritual, and it's presented before God and then ultimately answered in what's brought back to the earth. In fact, all that happens on the earth in terms of God's justice comes because you cried out to God. What's coming to this world is a result of God answering our prayers and justifying us, vindicating us, rescuing us from a cruel and dark world. That's amazing. Keep praying. Never stop praying. Never give up. Though it tarry, it will come. In his timing, not ours. Verse 6, And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. The first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. They were thrown down to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up. All the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters. The name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. The fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck so that a third of them would be darkened and the day would not shine for a third of it and the night in the same way. Then I looked and I heard an eagle flying in the mid heaven saying with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound the blowing of the trumpets, the judgment of God. This is what's encapsulated in this holy day. This is what informs us on this holy day. This is what prepares us for what is coming through this holy day. Now, I want you to keep in mind that the book of Revelation is filled with figures of speech, metaphors, you know, symbols, it's, it's, it's apocalyptic literature. So it's highly symbolic. You got to read through, through the lines, so to speak, to understand what's being said. But suffice it to say, 
four angels are spoken of here. We just read four angels, four trumpets, four cataclysmic events. Now, in order to better understand what this is, we're going to have to look at the previous chapter. The previous chapter. Now, I want to read this really quick, and then we'll go into some questions. It says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. This is chapter 6. After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Notice chapter 8 starts with four angels that that blow four trumpets and then bring these events. They're holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel descending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. So, so what we see is the holding back. And then in chapter 8, we see what was held back is now unleashed. So the three questions for us today. Who are the four angels and the four winds? Who are they? Where do they come from? Who sends them? Why does God grant them permission to bring devastation to our world? We've said this before. We see bad things happening and we say, oh man, that's the enemy. Is it? Or is it God? Is it God who sends the calamity? And if so, we're in a whole lot of trouble because no one is going to overcome God. And then question number three, what does it mean to seal God's servants on their foreheads? What does that mean? Let's go to the first question. Who are the four angels and the four winds? In hermeneutics, there's a maxim. Context is, thank you, king. Context is king. In order to understand a passage, you have to understand it within its own framework and then what informs it in terms of antecedent theology. So let's take a look at that. The four angels and four winds are the four horsemen in chapter 6. They are the four evil, destroying angels specializing in causing fear, specialists in misery, suffering, and death. This is what they do. They're artists, and this will be their masterpiece, pouring out the wrath of God on a world gone crazy. They're first seen in Zechariah chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, which I think is fascinating. Revelation 6, 1 through 6. Zechariah 6, 1 through 6. Isn't that interesting? I just think that alone is interesting enough. But going back to Zechariah chapter 6, 1 through 6, you'll know that the four spirits or winds of heaven are in fact beings. They're angels. Let me just read the text here. Now, this is still in Revelation chapter 6, and then we'll, we'll get to Zechariah. But it says this. 
Then I saw when the lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, come. I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come, and another, a red horse, went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the and the wine. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. I looked and behold an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following him. Verse 8. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. These are the four evil punishments from the Lord to those who hate him and persecute his people. Ezekiel 14:21 says this, thus says the Lord God, even though I send against Jerusalem my four evil punishments, sword, famine, wild beasts, and plague, to cut off from it human being and beast alike. Let's just keep that up there if we could for a moment. This is from Ezekiel. The four evil punishments that God sends against Jerusalem a long time ago for her sins. Notice, they're the same ones that he's going to pour out again at the end of the age. These are the punishments that God uses when people groups, when nations, when even the world refuses to repent and is hell-bent on hurting each other and persecuting his people. These are the four judgments or the four evil punishments that God sends. So one of the meanings of Yom Teruah is a reminder that God will judge those who hate him, who hate his son, his law, and oppress and persecute and murder his people. And this, again, is illustrated in Revelation chapter 7 and the seven trumpets. So when we hear the shofar and the trumpets blown, we are reminded that God will hold accountable all of those who assaulted his people, that God will come and pay them back and raise us up and restore us to life everlasting. Second question, why does God grant evil angels authority to unleash such destructive works in our world? Do you find that shocking? That God would actually use an evil spirit to accomplish his will and purposes. We see this in the Tanakh and it's very disturbing. It gives us a picture of God that sometimes upsets our theology, our 
idea of what we would like God to be. But yet we have it right before us again. Here's another example of that. So why does God do that? He grants four evil destroying angels the authority to unleash his four evil punishments on the entire world for their immoral, idolatrous, and murderous ways. Again, they hated God, they hated his son, they hated his ways, and they persecuted and even murdered his people. They oppressed, persecuted, and murdered his people down through the ages. Not just at the end of the ages, but down through the ages. And this is the big payback. It is God's justice on our behalf. He is a king and he will judge and remove lawless, bigoted oppressors from the world that he's created. Question three, what about the seal of God on the foreheads of his people? Revelation chapter seven, verse three, let's read it again. He tells the four evil destroying angels, don't do anything yet until I seal my bondservants. It says, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. Now this mark of God on our foreheads, it's a spiritual mark. It's not a literal mark. It's a spiritual mark that evil spirits in the spirit realm can see. You can't see it in the natural realm, but it's not for the natural realm. It's for the spiritual realm. It's for the angels. It's for this divine war that's in the heavenlies that's making its way to the earth. And God says, mark my people. And when you see the mark, don't you lay one hand on them. Every work that you do, this work of pestilence and, and plague and death and terror, don't you touch them. God marks out his people. Purposes to protect us from the pain, the misery, and the death that the four evil spirits specialize in and unleash at the end of the age. Later in chapter 13, we see another mark, the one that we're most familiar with, the mark of the beast. Let me just read that for us. Revelation 13, 11 through 17. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And then our passage. And he causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number 
of his name. That mark appears to be something that everyone can see in the natural realm. And you have to have either the mark of the, the name in your hand or forehead, the number of the beast, or you have to have the name of the beast, which is interesting. The name or the mark. And the name is in reference to the character of the beast. And I believe that what that points us to is the idea that you can have the name of the beast without receiving the mark of the beast and still be identified with the beast. The name is in reference to the character. In the Hebrew mindset, in the Hebrew world, names reveal the person and their character. So to have the name of a person means to have the character of that person. What character do you have? You can embrace the character of the beast and thus be identified with the beast even if you don't have his mark. This is very, very significant for all of us to understand. The beast demands allegiance. And for those who do not submit, the beast and its system will try and crush you. And God's saying, well, that's interesting because actually I'm going to crush you and yours. And I too have a mark, and I've marked out my own. And what I'm pouring out is much greater in terms of, of terror and pain than what the beast system could ever bring. Let's look at the antecedent theology for marks on the hand or the forehead. Let's go back and through the law of first reference begin to get that foundation of what the mark on the forehead's all about. This is found in Exodus 13, 6 through 10. This is um, an admonition, actually a command for God's people to observe the Passover every year, another holy day of God. Exodus 13, 6 through 10. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten throughout the seven days, and nothing leavened shall be seen among you nor shall any leaven be seen among you in all of your borders. You shall tell your son on that day, saying, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. It's a memorial to God as Savior and Deliverer. Interesting, verse 9. And it, what's the it? Your observance of Passover, the keeping of the festival. It shall serve as a sign to you on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth for with a powerful hand the Lord brought you out of Egypt. So keeping the memorial to the Exodus, i.e. keeping Passover week, it functions as a mark on our hand and our forehead to remind us who God is. He's our Lord and our Savior, the one that delivered us and brought us into his kingdom, that we're his treasured people, that the law or Torah of God should be in our thoughts and in our mouths. 
that the keeping of the Shabbat and the festivals are actually spiritual marks on our lives that identify us in the spirit realm as belonging to the living God, which communicates to the spirit world, hands off or you'll pay the price. Marks of identification through what we do. Spiritual marks that heaven sees. Later, we see this in Ezekiel. Israel has fallen into idolatry once again, and she's been pursuing uh, false gods and idolatry, just living according to her flesh for, for quite a while, generations. And so God is finally moving in judgment against his people again. Ezekiel says, Then he cried out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Draw near, O executioners of the city. Speaking of Jerusalem, God is sending evil spirits to bring judgments as a form of chastisement to his people. Then he cried out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Draw near, O executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in hand. Behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his shattering weapon in his hand. And among them was a certain man clothed in linen with a writing case at his loins. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Then the glory of the God of Israel went up from the cherub on which it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called out to the man clothed in linen at whose loins was the writing case. Then the Lord said to him, verse 4, Go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. For those who love me in my ways, for those who weep when they see the compromise and the syncretism, the abandonment of my ways. You mark them. Mark them first and mark them well. But to the others he said in my hearing, go through the city after him and strike. Do not let your eye have pity and do not spare. Who's he talking about? Those of his own people who had abandoned his ways. Think of the Exodus. God says, if, if you'll slay the lamb, embrace, identify with, and slay the lamb, and put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of the house, that evil destroying angel will not come into your home. You'll be protected. And for every Israelite that did not do that, they were not spared. They experienced the judgment poured out on Egypt that was intended for Egypt and not them because of their disobedience. If anyone has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying. You can say, but I'm under grace, so it doesn't matter how I live. You better wake up. That's what they said. We got the temple. They said the temple, the temple, the temple, referring to the blood atonement, that they could just do whatever they wanted because they had the blood atonement. In Catholic theology, I can go to confession. In Protestant theology, once saved, always saved. It doesn't matter. Listen to what the Lord is saying, people. Wake up. 
He loves you enough, he'll, he'll, he'll slap you up one side down the other if that's what it's going to take to wake you up. But you don't need to be slapped upside one side down the other, right? Amen. Verse 6, utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, little children, and women. But do not touch any man on whom is the mark, and you shall start from my sanctuary. Why? Because judgment begins in the house of the Lord. Start with my priests. Move your way down through the city to the least among them. So they started with the elders who were before the temple. Elders, elders. We are not exempt because of our status. We are not exempt. In fact, we're held to a higher, higher standard. Everyone. We need to really get serious and press into the Lord because the days of judgment are beginning to break out. It's coming. He says, mark those and those that are marked will be exempt. The exact same thing he's saying in the book of Revelation. The exact same thing he said back during the Exodus. God is the same today as he's ever been. And he'll never change. These are the paradigms of judgment. And he said to them, defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. Thus they went out and struck down the people in the city. And as they were striking the people, and I alone was left, I fell on my face and cried out saying, Alas, Lord God, are you destroying the whole remnant of Israel by pouring out your wrath on Jerusalem? Then he said to me, the iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is very, very great, and the land is filled with blood, and the city is full of perversion. For they say, the Lord has forsaken the land, and the Lord does not see. But as for me, my eye will have no pity, nor will I spare, but I will bring their conduct upon their heads. Then behold, the man clothed in linen, at whose loins was uh, the writing case, reported, saying, I have done just as you have commanded me. So in summary, the antecedent theology of marks on the hand and the forehead serve as marks of identification and separation. God marks his people and the enemy marks his. The beast persecutes and martyrs those who refuse to bow and serve him. And God marks his people in order to protect them from the wrath that he pours out on those who had hurt his people. Back to Revelation chapter 7. Verse 4, and I heard the number, this might be uh, chapter 6, or it might be chapter 7. But it's either chapter 6 or chapter 7. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel, from the tribe of Judah, goes on, goes through all the tribes, says they were sealed, a total of 144,000. Verse 9 through 13, after these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all the tribes and the peoples and the tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Those who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and where have they come from? God seals his people. Who are his people? 144,000 Jews. Now that's symbolic. 144,000, 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes is just communicating the fullness of Israel. Salvation comes from the Jews and is for the Jews. And then also to the Gentiles, to the Jew first and then the Gentiles. So the sealing is first among the Jewish believers, and then after that, to all the Gentiles of the nations. They too are embraced. They're grafted in. They become part of the Israel of God, and God seals them all. So he asks, who are these, and where have they come from? Verse 14, and I said to him, my Lord, you know, and he said to me, These are the ones who came out or who come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. These are the ones that have come out of the great tribulation. Which great tribulation? Matthew 24 talks about a great tribulation in the context of 70 A.D., You know, the one that took place with the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD where the siege on Jerusalem was so fierce and the starvation so extensive that Jewish mothers were butchering each other's kids and cannibalizing them to stay alive. A tribulation so great that the Jewish historian, the greatest celebrated Jewish uh, um, historian of, of, of that age, said there was no greater tribulation in all of Jewish history. And there were some pretty severe ones that came before that one. And that's what Jesus was referring to in Matthew 24 when he talked about the great tribulation. But yet we know there's going to be another tribulation at the end of the age. Truth be known, there's many tribulations in between and even before 70 A.D., Perhaps the writer, when he refers to the great tribulation, is referring to tribulation that comes in every age throughout all times. Who hasn't, as a believer, suffered for Christ? Who who hasn't, as a believer, been attacked by the enemy? Who, Who hasn't, as a believer, been tempted in sin? No, I'm telling you the truth when I say, that those that are dressed in white are each and every one of us in every generation who stayed faithful and loyal to the king in the midst of trials and tribulations and temptations. We are the ones that come out of the great tribulation, the great meaning throughout all time, the assault of the wicked one on the righteous. We are those that are represented here. That's why this book speaks to every generation. I'm sorry. The futurists who always want to put all these events sometime in the future, 
thus excusing us over and over and over and making the text meaningless in every generation except for that select group for 42 months. It's just crazy. These words are for you and me today, and they're just as true and relevant as they are to everyone in every generation. The war that started started all the way back in the Garden of Eden. And the enemy has been pursuing God's people ever since. And this is going to culminate in one final great end-time battle. Got your game on? Why go and hide? Listen to me. (sighs) Two things. I'm not going to go start a colony in the mountains. Ooh, it's the end times. The Antichrist is out and we're in trouble. We better go to the hills and start a colony and eat biscuits from the Mormons that have 50 years shelf life. Every vitamin and mineral you need, the brown nuggets, just like Purina dog chow. I'm not doing that. I'm not going to do that. Besides, all those end up being nudist colonies. I'm sorry, that's where they go. First you go up there, you're hiding out, it's the wilderness. That's the path to Wicca. And Wicca does everything naked up in the mountains, and I am not going to sit on a pine bench naked and get a sliver you know where. Ain't doing it. Why go and hide? This is our greatest time ever. Get your battle gear on. I'm not running from the dragon. I'm going to try to take his head off. Remember Lord of the Rings? She cut off the head of the dragon of the Antichrist. Oh my, he about had a fit. He jumped off his horse and he said, don't you know, no man can kill me. She took her helmet off. She had blonde hair like Shana. I am no man. And she stuck the sword right through his helmet and he just shriveled up and died. Why run when we can engage the enemy in battle and take him down? For our king is king of kings and lord of lords. Ours is the line of the tribe of Judah. We will not run and hide. We will let our light shine. We're going to share the testimony and love of God through Jesus Christ, win souls to the kingdom, and we're going to stand our ground even to the point of death. And that will be our victory. Because the book of Revelation is very clear when it says, they overcame him by the word of their testimony and the blood of the Lamb. And they did not fear, even for their very lives. That's how they overcame. If the beast kills us, that's a promotion. If the beast kills us, that's our victory. Overcoming is when you stand your ground and you don't compromise, even when the enemy slays you. You're singing the high praises of Jesus, even in the flames. You know, is that amazing? What we need is that Daniel spirit, right? Daniel in the lion's den. Isn't that amazing? Those three, his three brothers, man, they said what they say. They said, oh, king, we will not bow to the image. You know, the image of the beast finds this traction in Daniel. We're not going to bow to the image. And even if God doesn't come and deliver us, we're still not going to bow. 
we'll go to our deaths first rather than break allegiance with the king of heaven. That's who we are. God is in control. He's the one through evil spirits who is unleashing terrible things to chastise the world, to punish the world. Some scholars point out that a close read of the book of Revelation and these, these terrible judgments, God doesn't do that. It's, they're not designed to bring people to repentance. They come because people have not repented. They're punishments. They're not designed to turn the world around to believe in his son. It's because the world has rejected his son and no one is believing anymore. It's, we're at the end. And that unrepented, wicked spirit in them that's asserting themselves finally gets its just due. While the people of God are protected and spared by his name written on their foreheads so that these spirits that do that work are restrained from touching on us. And that is a sweet, sweet donut. I don't know, that was stupid. I was doing so good. Man, I was doing so good. Okay. All right, so I think we are done. Um, I think we're done. I'm going to stop short because I'm sure you have some questions. So I'm going to do some question and answers.